Our scripture text this morning comes out of the 25th Psalm, verses 8 through 14. Psalm 25, it's on page 655 using the Bible in the racks. The 25th Psalm contains what I believe to be the most exciting aspect of what it means to walk in the fear of the Lord. This morning in our study, I want us to know exactly what it means to go directly to the heart of God. I want us to go to the treasure of God's desire for each one of us. I want us to see the Lord's motive for creating us and his purpose for redeeming us. And the 25th Psalm tells us exactly what that that treasure is. Starting with verse 8, the Psalm 25. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in justice and he teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are loving kindness and truth to those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my iniquity, for it is great. Who is the man who fears the Lord? He will instruct him in the way he should choose. His soul will abide in prosperity, and his descendants will inherit the land. The secret of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he will make them know his covenant. Shall we pray? Our Heavenly Father, our Lord, our God, our Creator, our Redeemer. So we come to you this morning, Lord, I've had on my mind the words of the song, Who am I? Who am I that the Lord of all the earth would care to know my name, would care to feel my hurt? Who am I that the bright and morning star would choose to light the way for my ever-wandering heart? Not because of who I am, but because of what you've done. Not because of what I've done, but because of, of who you are. Oh God, I pray that as we open your word, you would speak to each one of our hearts. You would show us who you are. And that when we get a glimpse, an enduring glimpse of your glory and a compelling sense of your goodness, that we would come to know and understand the surpassing depth of the riches that you have for each one of us in Christ Jesus. In whose name we pray. Amen. Most of you know that I'm not very good at word games until I can see the letters and process them in my mind. You know, I can spell a word, but if somebody else spells it, I have no idea what they're they're, they're talking about. When the kids were little, Jan would spell C-O-O-K-I-E, and they knew what it was. They were bright kids, but uh, I didn't have a clue what they were talking about. I had asked somebody what their name is, and they say, well, let me spell it, S-M-I-T-H. That doesn't help me a bit. It just goes over my head. The other day, I was talking to an architectural client on the phone, and he was giving me an email address of a, of a builder, and the email address is about 30 letters long. And finally, I said to the client, you wait right there. I'm coming right over, <laughs> and you can give it to me. Jan thinks it's hilarious that the first job I applied for at Insight for Living was in listener services, where I'd be answering calls and taking down people's information. And uh, now Jan is testing me every evening because she started working crossword puzzles. She says she's doing it to exercise her own brain, but I think it's just to, uh, anyway, because my my brain doesn't function that way. And she tells me, you're just no help at all. I can watch Wheel of Fortune and there can be a three-letter phrase there and only one letter missing in a preposition and I can still get it wrong. I I don't know. 
Well, since Jan has been asking me to help her with five letters across and six letters down that make no, absolutely no sense to me, I thought we could play a little word game this morning. I want you to complete the following sentence. It's not going to be as tough as you think. I will start the sentence, and then I want you to say the rest of it out loud. Here it is. Ready? Draw near to God and... He will draw near to you. Let's do it again. Draw near to God and... He will draw near to you. Anybody know what the scripture reference is? Get extra credit. James 4, 8. James chapter 4, verse 8. Now everybody knows it, right? But the question is, what does that mean? And what does it mean to my life? And so answer this question out loud, according to James 4, 8. Who does the drawing? According to 4, 8, <laughs> who does the drawing? We do. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to us. Yeah, there's other scripture passage that says he draws us. No one comes to the Father, Jesus said, except I draw him, he draws him. But at least according to James 4, 8, we do the drawing. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to us. And so we see it's one thing to be able to quote it, to say it, those kind of things. It's quite another thing when we start applying it to our lives. And what is that saying there? And in practical Christian living, this tells me that I am as close to God as I want to be. I'm as close to God as I want to be. You know, one of the things I love about God's word, that it's not just a bunch of theological statements and axioms to live by. And I love theology. I love to study God's word in a way that puts the great truths of God's word together. But the really cool thing is that the Bible is story. It's story. It's true life adventures of people just like you and me. And even those books in the Bible, which tend to be highly theological, like the book of Romans that contains deep truths about God and about his creation, even the book of Romans is cast among real people in a real place like Rome. People who were living real lives and had stuff in their lives just like all of us do. They're not just words on a page. Now, of course, one of the things that makes God's word living and active is that it's God-breathed. It is his word. It's inspired by the Holy Spirit. And so the Holy Spirit takes his word and not only inspired the very words that are written down in God's word, but as those words are communicated to others, the Holy Spirit is at work in their lives on the reception end. The Bible has great truths, and it takes great truths. The word is truth. And it takes great insights into who God is and how he works. And we see those truths lived out in the lives of ordinary people, God's ordinary servants. So when we come to understand a concept like the fear of the Lord, it's helpful to see how that's lived out in God's word rather than just simply defined. How did Abraham live in the fear of the Lord or Moses or David or the disciples of Jesus? Now, definitions are important. Definitions based on God's word distinguish between truth and error. They separate true Christianity from the false. But definitions can become like a word game where we just start fiddling with the definition and then we never start applying it to our lives. So to really understand the fear of the Lord, we need to get more of a handle on it than just a definition. But with that said, I'm going to give you the best definition I have found of what it means to fear the Lord. 
For example, John Murray offers what I believe to be the best practical definition of the fear of the Lord. And Murray writes, I think I might even, might even put this in the outline, the fear of God in which godliness consists is the fear which constrains, that is, compels or powerfully produces adoration and love. It is the fear which consists in awe, reverence, honor, and worship, and all these on the highest level of exercise. It is the reflex in our consciousness of the transcendent majesty and holiness of God. Now, if you're thinking, huh? <laughs> or you may have gotten some of it or a lot of it that the kind of ring a bell. You know, the way my brain works when I hear something like that, I'm more of the, the huh kind of guy. But Murray goes on to say, the fear of the Lord is the soul of godliness. The fear of the Lord is the soul of godliness. Now, we can stop and ponder that for a minute before we see it worked out among ordinary people in Scripture. The soul of godliness, that is, the fear of God, is the animating and invigorating principle of a godly life. It is the wellspring, of, as somebody has said, of all that is godly, our desires and aspirations, spring, the wellspring, of, of those. In other words, all that we say, all that we do, all that we have done, all that we think, how we treat other people, how we respond to people, all our attitudes and all our reflex actions and responses, if they are godly, come from the fear of God. The fear of the Lord is the wellspring of all godly aspirations and desires. And that's what John Murray discovered when he did a biblical study of the fear of God. And that's what I want us to discover this morning. And here's the thing. To help us understand what it means to fear the Lord, which is the animating and invigorating principle of a godly life, where the reflexes of our soul produce godliness and holiness, God has given us his word. And in his word, he has given us specific real-life examples in his word of how godly men and women lived in the fear of the Lord. So please turn once again to Psalm 25, the 12th verse, page 655, the 12th verse of this 25th Psalm. Because I want you to see something that's really cool and exciting in this 25th Psalm. And then so that we really get it, we'll see how it was lived out in the example of some of God's godly servants. Beginning at verse 12 of the 25th Psalm. The psalmist asked the question, who is the man who fears the Lord? Who is this guy? Who is the man who fears the Lord? Then David, the psalmist, answers his own question. He is the man whom God instructs and gives guidance. Who is the man who fears the Lord? He will instruct him in the way that he should choose. And then David lists some of the benefits of fearing the Lord. Verse 13, his soul will abide in prosperity and his descendants will inherit the earth, literally. And then he goes on to say, the secret of the Lord, in verse 14, is for those who fear him. The secret of the Lord is for those who fear him. Notice that word secret. How many of you know a secret? We all do. <laughs> okay, it doesn't mean the secrets are necessarily bad things. Secrets can be good things. They can be very good things. The early months of a pregnancy. 
are a secret, a very good thing. Surprise birthday bar parties are sometimes good things. When you put the big sombrero on, did they tell you ahead of time <laughs> they were going to do that? <laughs> I always pick on Clovis because she was concerned last week about this, this very thing, so I'm anxious to see how the secret went. We all have things that we know. There's things about ourselves that we don't want to reveal to other people. It could be good things. It could be bad things. But the better we know or trust somebody, someone else, the more likely we are to reveal that secret to them. Does God have secrets? It says right here he does. Sure he does. It says the secret of the Lord. And grammatically, it's in the possessive form. In other words, the secrets belong to the Lord. Remember the little apostrophe S he put on the end of a word? You know, that's what it is. It's the Lord's secret, literally. It belongs to the Lord. It's something that only the Lord knows. Something that it could be about himself. It could be about other things. It could be about his creation. He can keep it to himself if he wants to. But he only reveals those secrets to those who fear him. In other words, these are the secrets of the Lord. It's what the Lord knows which he may or may not choose to reveal. Now, the Hebrew word translated secret is sod, S-O-D, sod. In the Old Testament, the word sod is translated as secret, counsel, friendship, consultation, company. In other words, sod, the secret, is reserved for those who are in somebody's inner circle of intimacy. These are things you're not going to share outside of, of the inner circle. And so sod refers to a person who has such a close, intimate relationship with someone that he or she is privy to things that other people don't know. They know the secrets. In other words, God reveals his ways, his work, only to those who fear him, only to those who are sowed. The secret of the Lord is for those who fear him. Job, for example, when he was talking to his companions who came to console him, and even though we say they are his friends, that's a whole different word. These guys weren't very friendly, so they weren't very intimate with Job. But when he was talking to his companions, he referred to the intimate knowledge of God and knowing God's secret as the friendship of God. Now, he took the word sowed, and he put a B in front of it, besowed, and that means in, so it's in friend or in friendship, something like that. And then Elohim, we understand that word, besowed Elohim, the friendship of God. It's just, you know, next week I'm going to be talking about meditating on God's word, and I've been meditating on this phrase all week, so I, so if I just get stuck here and we never get to anything else this morning, that would be a really cool thing, but we will. Because the besowed, besowed Elohim, and Job likened it to going into his tent at night and putting a light in his tent. And the light dispelled all the darkness. And he said, the besowed Elohim is over my tent. And I thought of those times, you know, we were up to Cascade, McCall this last week, we used to go up to Cascade and... We had this dumpy little travel trailer and stuff, but Dad had these Coleman lanterns, you know, and so it's dark outside, you can hear the crickets, and it's, you know, and we go in at night, and 
you take the Coleman lantern and light the mantle and hang it up in the middle, you know, whether it's your tent or your travel trailer, and it was bright enough I could read. <laughs> and I love to read, so I, I'd read Black Beauty, you know, till late into the night and other books while we were up at Cascade because the so, the light of the Lord was revealing. I could see, I could read, I could learn. The Besot Elohim was, was over his tent. And that is the treasure that God has for those who fear him. Job enjoyed the intimate friendship of God. And those in the Bible have that close, intimate fellowship with God, an intimate relationship where one draws close to God and God draws close to him, where God shares intimate knowledge of himself and of his ways and enlightens them into these secrets where the Lord shares his secret. That kind of relationship with God is called besod Elohim, the friendship of God. Now, in the Old Testament, there are only two people re actually referred to as the friends of God, Abraham and Moses. We know that there were more. Job enjoyed friendship with God, even though he's not specifically called a friend of God. He was. God had many friends, all of the prophets, literally. David, Daniel, Ruth, Deborah, we could go on down the line. But Abraham and Moses become our real-life examples from the Old Testament to show how each one of us might become friends of God. Besot Elohim. And no one experienced what it means to be a friend of God, to be so close to God that God reveals his secret, his soul. So turn to Genesis chapter 22 at verses 1 and 2. Chapter 22 of Genesis, the first verse, page 23 if you're using the, the Bible in the rack. When Abraham was 75 years old, God came to Abraham and cut a covenant with him, an agreement. And within the parameters of that covenant, God promised Abraham his heart's desire, a son. Now, before the birth of the son, Abraham had made several mistakes. Some of them were quite serious. Last week, we lost, or we looked at that business where on two different occasions, he claimed Sarah was his sister. Abraham wasn't perfect. He didn't have it all together all the time. Yet through it all, Abraham believed and obeyed God and was fully persuaded that God would perform all that was promised in the covenant. When Abraham was 99 years old, his wife became pregnant and their promised son, Isaac, was born. Can you imagine the joy Abraham and Sarah experienced after waiting so many years? the love that they had for this promised child. And time passed and the relationship between father and son became very close. And the life of this boy, Isaac, meant more to Abraham than Abraham's old own life. His great wealth and blessing of God was nothing in comparison to the joy of this son. Nothing meant more to Abraham than the precious son given to him by God. That's where we pick it up in verse 1 of Genesis 22. Now it came about after these days that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take now your son, your only son whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt sacrifice on one of the mountains, which I will tell you. I can't even imagine Abraham's shock at hearing these words. 
Never had he dreamed that God would ask this of him. He was stunned. Father and son were so close. After all those years of waiting for this precious young man, God had asked for more than even Abraham's own life. He had asked for Abraham's heart. It made no sense. But Abraham knew that God didn't make mistakes. There are only two options for a covenant man. You either obey or you break covenant. To break covenant was not even a consideration for this man of faith. He was so immersed in godly fear. Now we know this was a test. That's what it says right there. But Abraham didn't have the book of Genesis. <laughs> he couldn't look at it and say, oh, okay, this is a test. We're going into it. Same way that when Jesus looked at all the crowd that was hungry, he, he said to Philip in order to test him, where are we going to buy food that these people might eat? Might eat? And Philip failed the test. We never know God is testing us until we're on the other side of the test. It may be possible to cheat on a school exam, but it's not possible to cheat on the exams that God gives us. If we have not studied, done our homework by purifying our hearts and cleansing our hands, we're not going to be able to pass the test that God gives, no matter how clever we are. So on the third day after hearing God's command, Abraham takes his son Isaac to the place of the sacrifice where God had prescribed after building the altar and arranging the wood, he bound his son and laid him on the altar. Verse 10. Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. And the angel of the Lord said to Abraham in verse 12, Do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And then God provided the ram as a sacrifice. And in verse 14, we have Abraham who feared God, calling out, the Lord will provide. Jehovah Jireh. Because Abraham feared God and obeyed him, God revealed something of himself that had never been revealed before in the history of the world. Have you ever thought of it that way? To one of his sowed, besot Elohim, to someone who had friendship of God. Never had God revealed before in the history of the world that he is Jehovah Jireh. The Lord is my provider. He revealed it to his friend, his, his friend who feared him, Abraham. I know we got, yeah, we've got it right over here. Jehovah Jireh on the green thing at the back. The secret of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he will make them know his covenant. Now, there was another man in the Bible who's called a friend of God. His name was Moses. Moses was a man who knew God's ways. In Exodus chapter 33, you don't need to turn to it, but verse 11 says, that you can turn to it if you want to, <laughs> that while Moses was standing in the tent of meeting, when Moses was in the tent of meeting, the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face. That means in his presence, just as a man speaks to a friend. Moses, as God's friend, was able to talk to God as an intimate, an intimate, on an intimate level. And the 103rd Psalm tells us the result of this. Verse 7 says, God made his ways known to Moses. 
God made his ways known to Moses, his acts to the sons of Israel. Because, the Israel. because Israel did not fear God, and we've looked at that recently, they were denied intimacy with God. His ways and the secret of his covenants were not revealed to the Israelites. They only knew what Moses told them about God and what Moses repeated about God's ways. They knew him in much the same way that uh, I might know the President of the United States. I know the president by his accomplishments or lack of, his policies or lack of, whether I agree or lack of, his provision or lack of his acts, but I really don't know the president of the United States. In the same way, the people of Israel were not privy to the why of God's covenant. They did not understand God's motives. They didn't understand his intentions. They did not understand the desires of his heart they were clueless. God will reveal himself to those who fear him. The children of Israel did not see the wisdom or understanding behind all that God was doing. Therefore, they were constantly out of step with God. But before we leave the Old Testament to go to the New, I want to point out something that's just really tremendous in all of this. The Bible says in Amos chapter 3, verse 7, Surely the Lord does nothing unless he reveals his secret counsel, his sowed. Surely the Lord does nothing until he reveals his sowed to his servants, the prophets. Have you ever seen that before? God doesn't do anything until he's revealed it to those besot Elohim, that friendship with God. This was true of both Abraham and Moses. God does do, doesn't do anything until he reveals it to his friends. We only have time to really look in depth at one example, maybe not all that in depth, but uh, since both Abraham and Moses were in God's inner circle where they feared God, besot Elohim, both of them were in a position where God considered their counsel. They both had long discussions with God as to what God was going or not going to do. So we'll look at Abraham. Turn back to Genesis chapter 18, verse 17. Yeah, 18, 18, verse 17. I just want you to see one verse here. The 18th chapter of Genesis, in this 18th chapter, Abraham is walking with the two angels who have just promised the birth of Isaac. And they're looking out towards Sodom. You've all heard of that place. Look at verse 17. They're looking out towards Sodom. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Shall I hide this from Abraham? God is rhetorically asking or saying, You let your friends in on what you're going to do. Especially those friends that have other friends who are going to be affected by this. And God is no different. Surely the Lord God does nothing unless he reveals his secret counsel, his sowed. When God revealed his intentions to Abraham, we have that wonderful account of Abraham bargaining or negotiating with God. Abraham's nephew Lot lived in Sodom. And Lot loved Sodom. He loved the lifestyle or whatever. I don't know why he would want to, but he lived in Sodom. And so Abraham starts to negotiate with God, his friend. Lord, what if there are 50 righteous people 
in Sodom. Would you destroy it then? God said, no. What if there are 45? What if there are 40? What if there are just 10? And the Lord, what's he do? He agrees all the way down the line. Lot makes one. Surely there's got to be nine more. Of course, there weren't nine more. Even add Lot's wife into it, you still don't get two. Her heart was still in Sodom. So she looked back. Abraham had asked that the lives of others be spared from the hand of God's judgment. You know, only a friend talks that way to a king or a judge who has the power to execute judgment. Coming from a servant or a subject, such a petition would be disrespectful and not heeded. In an ancient Babylon, you could lose your head for making such a suggestion to the king. But Abraham actually entered into a negotiation process with God. Abraham talked God down from 50 to 10, and the angels went on their way into Sodom to search out 10 righteous people in Sodom and Gomorrah. And it became obvious even to Abraham that the report of wickedness was true. For not even 10 righteous people could be found in either city. The Lord found only Lot, Abraham's nephew, and his family. God showed his friend Abraham what he planned to do. He confided in Abraham because Abraham feared God. His fear had raised him to the level of God's confidant. Besot Elohim, the friendship of God. And with Moses, it was the same way, at least on two separate occasions. God relented on what he was going to do based on a conversation with his friend Moses. One of the times was when because of the sin of Israel, God had previously promised that his presence would be with the people. God removes his presence, and he says to Moses, if your presence does not go with us, don't even send us up from here. God said, well, I'm going to send an angel before you. Moses, his friend, said, that's not good enough, Lord. And so finally, after that discussion, and, God, and Moses sees the glory of God, God says to Moses, my Presence will go with you, Moses. Friendship. On another occasion, the Lord said, I'm going to kill all these people and make a new nation with you, Moses. And what does Moses do? He negotiates with God. And God relented. The King James Version said God repented. Did he actually change his mind? or did he? I don't know. We don't need to get into all that theologically, but I do know that as friends of God, we can talk with God about those matters. And God did not take out all the people. And what does Moses do? Later he negotiates with God and says, well, if you're not going to kill them, kill me. <laughs> How many times can we look at people in the, the Old Testament where they have that friendship with God that they can speak whatever is on their mind? But we have a tendency to think, well, that's all Old Testament, right? What about the New Testament in our relationship with Jesus Christ? Turn over to the Gospel of John. John chapter 15. At verse 12, page 1327, if you use the, the Bible. 15th chapter of John. We spent quite a bit of time not too long ago in this 15th chapter of John because here we find Jesus in the upper room with his disciples. He has just talked about, I am the vine and you are the branches. And he's, he's teaching these men that he has, he has discipled and over these years and Judas has already left to go and betray Jesus. They've eaten the Lord's Supper together. And Jesus is giving his final words before he goes to the cross. 
And in verse 12 of John 15, Jesus says, This is my commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than one lays down his life for his friends. And having brought up the topic of his friends, now follow this closely, verse 14. You are my friends if you do what I command you. Now we're going, what kind of friendship is that if I just do what he tells me to do? What kind of friendship is it when the king, the Lord of lords, the sovereign of the universe says, you are my friends? See, we got that turned around. You are my friends, my philos in the Greek. We get the word Philadelphia from it, a brotherly kind of love, kind of friendship. No longer do I call you slaves, verse 15. For the slave does not know what his master is doing. I think most of us have had that experience where we work for somebody else and you're never quite sure what the boss is doing or what he's up to (laughs) or even where he is half the time. And the farther you are down the pecking order in the company, the less you know. The less you know what goes on in the main office and what the boss is doing and why he does it. And what is the difference between a slave or a worker in this regard and a friend? What is the difference between a slavish fear and the fear of the Lord? Jesus' men had walked faithfully with him for over three years. They'd made some mistakes. I like that part about the sons of thunder wanting to call down fire upon Samaria and those kind of things. You know, they had some things. Uh, Jesus goes, that's really stupid, guys. And sometimes he did that. <laughs> They've said some wrong things, but when everybody else turned from the Lord, they hung in there. There was one time where the crowd was following Jesus. They wanted to make him king because they had been fed. And Jesus turns on his heels and says, unless you eat my body and drink my blood, you have no part with me. And they all turned and left, except the twelve. And Jesus stood and said to them, do you want to go away also? And Peter said, basically, Lord, we have no place to go. You have the words of life. You have the words of life. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his father is doing, but I have called you friends. Besot Elohim. Friendship with God. For all things that I have heard from my Father, don't skim over that. All things I have heard from my Father, everything the Father told Jesus, everything the Father told Jesus, those nights all night in prayer, alone with the Father, whenever the Father spoke to Jesus, everything I have heard from my Father, what? I have made known to you. Jesus held nothing back from his friends. Everything that Jesus heard from his father, he'd made known to the Bishot Elohim, the friends of God. The secret of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he will make them know his covenant. Shall we pray? Father, and in just a moment, we're going to gather at the table of the Lord. The same way the disciples did, Lord. We're going to gather as your friends who, to whom you have made known your covenant, the new covenant, where Jesus said, this is 
my blood. This is the cup of the new covenant. The agreement, the relationship that you have made with us through Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that as we gather at the Lord's table, the Besot Elohim, the friendship of the Lord, your friendship with us, will be over all that we say and do and think. As we eat this bread and we drink this cup. Father, what an incredible, wonderful thing that we can set down with our Savior Jesus Christ, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. And we can sup at his table as his friends. And we give you thanks. In Jesus' name, amen.